I would ask you to take your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. We'll remain standing for the reading of God's Word. Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, And character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we have been saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Father, thank you so much for your word, and may you point us to the Lord Jesus, all of us, for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. I love hearing babies. I just ramp up the volume when I hear them because they're not going to, but it is so wonderful because you know what having babies is? Having babies shows us that the church is alive. It shows us that the church is alive. And so I'm grateful for that. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 1 through 11, it's an introduction. It's actually a transition. We might even want to call it a bridge uh, from what Paul has already told us leading through chapter 4, justification by faith, with Abraham being the father of faith, of Abraham being the example, uh, illustrating what it means to be justified apart from works. Now, Paul, with the word therefore in verse 1 of 5, he is opening up which, as I mentioned, verses 1 through 11, is an introduction that slays the framework It lays the framework for chapters 5, the remainder of 5, 6, 7, and 8, which is a real practical understanding of what the justified uh, life looks like. And we broke this down in two messages a couple weeks ago. Uh, We went verses uh, 1 through 5, and we saw that the theme in this is assurance, is that God wants his people assured. The very words have been justified by faith. We have peace. These are words of assurance. And I encourage you with five assurances that come from verses 1 through 5. In verse uh, 1, we see peace with God. It was an objective peace, a declared peace, which is a legal term, uh, declaring us before him righteous. But there's also the peace of God that is subjective. It is the peace of God that is mentioned in Philippians chapter 4 that allows us to weather the storms in life, the peace that passes all understanding. And then in verse 2, the second assurance that we had was access to God. And I mentioned that 
I hope at great length in the pastoral prayer, is that never underestimate what salvation has done. It has opened the door for our access to God, for communion with him. And Paul would say, through him, through Christ, we have access by faith. And then in verse 2, we saw that one of the great assurances of the believer is grace, is grace to stand. And this grace is the righteousness that has been imputed to us. And in your fight with the devil, you have to wear the breastplate of righteousness. If you do not, you will be defeated. You have no antidote. You have no way to fend off the fiery darts of accusation from the devil or your conscience apart from the righteousness of Christ, the breastplate of righteousness. So we stand in the grace of that righteousness. Then we saw in verse 2 also the glorious future, and I'll mention that later on in the hope of the glory of God. And finally, verse 3, the... uh, the assurance that we're able to rejoice in our sufferings. Now, as we work through verses 6 to 11 today, we're going to look at the assurance of God's love. The assurance of God's love, which is found in Christ's death. In Christ's death. You know, I, I love what is happening in, in our worship. I love that what's going on is we have servants in our worship team, and I love that the way that the, the music or the songs point away from ourselves, and this morning, as you heard, it was all focused to the death of Christ and in Christ alone, and this is what Paul is going to do for us in 6 through 11. He focuses on death, but he also focuses on love. The theme of death, death Die, died, it runs throughout these verses, 6 through 11. Five times in five verses, he will give reference directly to death. If you would note uh, in verses 6 through 8, just three verses, each one ends with the verb to die. So Paul is emphasizing death. But he's not emphasizing just any death. What he's really doing is taking the key element of justification by faith, which is the propitiation of Jesus Christ, which occurred in Romans 3 and Romans 4. He doesn't expound it in those verses. He just said that God put him forth as a propitiation without explaining that. And then in chapter 4, he would say he was delivered up, which is death, for our trespasses, but he doesn't explain it. Now he's going to expand this. He's going to talk at great length what Christ's death actually accomplished beyond just a notional understanding of justification. And in this section, Romans 5, 6 through 11, there are three points we want to look at. Number one, verses 6 and 8, whom did Christ die for? Secondly, what did Christ's death accomplish? Verses 9 and 10. And then finally, what is the fruit or the application of those who have been reconciled by Christ's death? And this can be a very encouraging aspect for the Christian. Because as you look into your own life and you see uh, what Christ's death did and the impact it has for you, if you were here for Sinclair Ferguson's teaching in the ABF Hour, he was talking about the personal nature of the gospel. So when we get to the third point, What is the fruit of those who are reconciled by Christ's death? And the answer is a rejoicing life. So I'll give that to you in advance. If our life as Christians, if we are morbid, negative, critical, uh, not not happy in a good sense, joyful Christians, then we're missing the understanding and the application of the atonement. It's because we are to be a rejoicing people. And there's so many times that you will find, and I'm already on the third point, I need to back up, but when you get to the... When, when, you, when you look at rejoicing in the Bible, in the New Testament, 
we should read that and we should say, Lord, is it I? Is it I? And then be humble enough to say, no, Lord, it is an I. Because rejoice always is the command. In all circumstances, rejoice. I have tried to erase the word always in my Bible. But I want us to look at these three points. Because as a Christian, this should so encourage you. To see the magnificent love of God in the death of Christ. And if you're not a Christian today, to see the love of God for you who are able to go from being estranged from Him to be in relationship with Him. Well, the first thing we want to look at then is whom did Christ die for? Verses 6 through 8. For while we were still weak at the right time or helpless or without strength, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Well, there's another another later on the verse. I'll show you that. There's another category. It's in verse 10. For while we were enemies. And so whom did Christ die for? What does the verse teach us? What does these verses uh, instruct us about those whom he died for. Now, if I was sitting down to talk with you, you would say, well, Christ died for sinners. Yes, he did. I don't think we understand how bad we are. I don't think we understand the depravity that we are. I don't think we fully understand, and it's not a condemnation. It's an assessment beginning with the guy in the mirror. I don't think we understand just how how bad we are separated from God. Well, Paul is going to give four characteristics or four categories of people which encompasses all of humanity for whom Christ died. The first one is he died for the incapable. Verse 6, for while we were still weak or helpless without strength. I love what Linsky said on this. This verse says that we were without spiritual life or strength. We are utterly lost and helpless. Friends, outside of Jesus Christ, we are not partially broke. We are not partially depraved. We are not partially estranged from God. Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, we are dead. We are dead in trespasses and sins. And here is, here is the astounding truth of the gospel. Jesus Christ dies for the incapable He dies for those uh, who cannot reconcile themselves with God. He dies for those who who are just totally without any strength whatsoever. And here's a further astounding truth of the gospel. It's just because I'm incapable of fulfilling the law of God that I'm obligated to, it does not remove my responsibility. I can't look and say, well, and I've had people tell me this. How can God... How can God command me to believe where you tell me that I can't believe? So I'm, I'm, not, I'm not culpable. See, that's a false understanding of the created order of the creator and the creature. Just because I can't obey his law does not remove my responsibility to that law. I am still obligated to that law that was broken in the Garden of Eden. And so when you look at who Christ died for... He died for us who are totally incapable of any type of reconciliation with God. 
Now, as you see each one of these categories of whom Christ died for, I pray that it drives us down to a very low view of ourselves and a very high view of who God is and the magnificence of the gospel. Because it's one thing for you to look at me and say you're incapably and reconciled to God. That's, yeah, okay. But there's a second one. Look at verse 6 also. Christ only died for the incapable. He died for the ungodly. Now it gets a little bit more uncomfortable. Go out in the world and tell, a, tell someone that is moral, that's not off the rails like most of the people in our country, just someone that has morals, look at that person and say, you are so ungodly. And watch the response. Paul says at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Ungodly is a strong word. It means a person lacking proper veneration as well as the practice of proper veneration. So we're lacking both the attitude of veneration as well as the practice of veneration. And it encompasses the whole person. But to be ungodly goes deeper than just my lack of veneration towards God. Ungodly means I am absolutely repugnant and hostility towards His holiness. Paul earlier told us in Romans chapter 1, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Ungodliness is the nature and the unrighteousness is the practice. And so not only is the gospel come to us who know that we're incapable of any reconciliation, the gospel comes to us for those who want absolutely nothing to do with God. And we're not indifferent. I remember remember being not hostile to the Jesus group on that ship. I could have cared less, really. I made fun of them. But you ever heard that saying when someone you talk to someone about the gospel or you pass out a track or someone says, I'm all set. I don't like that. I, I'm all set. Well, that's, 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 what the un, that, that, that's what the ungodly does. The ungodly looks at you and says, I'm, a, I'm, I'm all set. I don't need you. And I don't even want you. And yet that's who God sends his son for. The incapable. The ungodly. But now also, now look at verse 8. Here's a third category that Paul would say that this gospel, that Christ's death has, is covering, is he died for sinners. Now here, that's a more familiar term with us. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, and the classic Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But we need to understand something about this falling short of the glory of God. Many of you know that to to sin or sin is defined as falling short of the mark. You fall short of the mark all the time. It's not like you're shooting at the bullseye. And I've heard the illustration of the the bow and arrows. It's not like once in a while you hit the target. It's not like you take the moral code of God, the moral law of God. You say, you know what? You know, I got eight out of ten. I'm good. You don't, you miss the mark all the time. I miss the mark all the time. And there are people in the world that have a very difficult time understanding that God cannot grade on a curve. Humans give passes on sin. God does not. And so what does Christ do? Paul says that Christ came to die 
And he came to die for the weak or the incapable. He came to die for the ungodly. He came to die for sinners. And then he's going to kind of bring us to the summit. Look at verse 10. And you may be today and not a Christian. And you, you're okay with me saying that we're sinners because you know you fall short. You're okay even with perhaps me saying you're ungodly. I'm not attacking you. But you may be okay saying, well, yeah, I really don't think much about God. So if that's the definition of ungodly, then I'm ungodly. And you may even be okay with saying, I'm, I'm not capable of, of reconciling myself to God. But, but God is merciful, and God is, is, is love, and I'm a pretty good person. And, you know, at the end of the day, when I stand before him, I'm, I think the scales are going to be okay. I think the good is going to outweigh the bad. Well, Paul would then seal that deal with verse 10. And this is the fourth category, and this is what we are outside of Christ. For if we were enemies, it changes everything now. We are not only incapable, we are not only ungodly, we are not only sinners, we are in hostility against God. By birth, we hate God. We have nothing to do with Him, but it's even more. We are at, we're at, 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 at odds with him. We are in his hostility to him. He says, for while we were enemies, and an enemy is someone who's at war, there is opposition, there is intense hostility, and that is constant. Between the sinner, the ungodly, the incapable, and God, there is never a period of ceasefire. There is never a period of a cessation of hostilities. There is never a Christmas day in the, in, the, in the battlefields of Germany or France where they sit down and they play soccer for a couple hours and go back to war. It never happens that way. Is that we are in a constant state of hostility against God. And friends, if we don't see that, then the gospel isn't good news. The gospel is not good news because you've yet to grasp the bad news. You've, you, you've yet to grasp that you can do nothing to reconcile yourself. You've held, failed to grasp that you have no desire for God. You've failed to grasp that you fall short of his moral code every day in your thoughts as well as in your actions. And that you are an avowed enemy against God. Now, if you know those things and you're a Christian, don't you want to stand up right now and say hallelujah for the gospel? If you know these things of yourself, don't you want to just shout, shout with joy and rejoicing that the gospel has come to you? Christian, if you've forgotten this was who you were, then all that's going to happen to you is you're going to be ate up with pride. Because to be, to be humbled begins with seeing who you are before God. And that not isn't just one and done in salvation. It also continues after. You must constantly remember this is who you were. The Apostle Paul never lost sight that he was the chief of sinners. And if we forget what we, what we were, then you're going to live a pharisaical life. You're going to be loveless. You're going to be graceless. You're going to be without mercy. Because you've forgotten that you received grace. You've forgotten that you receive love. And you've forgotten that you give mercy. And so then we see then Paul just would, would, would tell us in justification by faith, this is how bad we were, which makes the gospel so, so good. Well, let's move on. Look at verses 9 and 10. 
So we've established who Christ died for. Not just for people that made a few mistakes. Not just for people who are just a little bit, you know, just not quite measuring up, but we're going to try harder. No, he died for the incapable. He died for the ungodly. He died for sinners and he died for enemies. Well, what did he accomplish? What did Christ's death accomplish? Verse 9, since therefore we have now been justified, there's one, by his blood, there's the reference to the death, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled, there's the second accomplishment, to God by the death, there's the linking to the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Isn't it wonderful that the tense of these works are passed with continual application, have been justified, are now reconciled, were reconciled to live that to live that life. Well, let's take a look at the first one then. What did Christ's death accomplish? Justified by his blood? It's, it's righteousness imputed. We're going to talk more about imputation next week. When we look at in Adam, in Christ. J. Evans, J. Evans once said this, quote, the only plank between the believer and destruction is the blood of the incarnate God. That's the only plank. End quote. When you, when you look at this imputation being justified, because justification provides for the imputation. It's that imputation of our sin to Christ, his righteousness to us. I want you to think about this for a minute. You're going to stand before God someday, every one of us. And Jesus told the Pharisees, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, which their level of righteousness was pretty high, Remember what Paul said? My, right? I was blameless. That's a pretty tall order to say. He believed it. Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let me ask you something right now. Are you prepared based on your conduct, based on your thinking, based on your heart, based on your actions of your life? Are you prepared to stand before God and say, I've, I've earned entrance into your heaven because of my righteousness? So what did, what did his death accomplish? It paved the way by the penalty paid so that we would be imputed with his life of obedience of righteousness. And when Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, well, if you're a Christian and you stand before him and you know what you can say with confidence? You. You. My righteousness is you. That's what Bunyan said. Bunyan said, he's my righteousness. I don't know if that's a direct quote, Gene. It's pretty close, though. Is that he understood that Christ was his righteousness. And friends, in 1 Corinthians 1.30, and you who are in Christ Jesus by the Father, he has become to us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. And the reason why that we have to have his death because there has to be a sacrifice that sheds blood so that we can be cleansed. If there's no blood, there is no justification. And if there's no justification, there's no righteousness. And here I stand before a God who is a consuming fire, a God whose eyes are like burning flames looking into me, and I got to stand before on the righteousness of Jim's soul. I'm doomed. And so are you. And if you need a heavy dose of humility in your life, think about that day standing before God on the righteousness of your own. 
There has to be a shedding of blood. The death accomplished justification with the implication of having a righteousness given to us so that no matter what I do, even in my many failings as a Christian, it doesn't change that I've got a robe on that I did not sew myself. I'm wearing this robe of perfect righteousness because I can look to the, to the blood sacrifice of the Savior. There was a little girl. You may have heard this, uh, this illustration. It's so gripping. She had a disorder, a disease that she needed a blood transfusion, multiple, and if she didn't have it, she would die. Well, she had a rare blood type, but her little brother was a match. Her parents were excited, told the little boy that, hey, your, your sister, she's dying and she needs your blood. And the little boy loved his sister. The brother loved his sister so much. He said, yes, yes, I'll give her my blood. He had no idea. You know, so they're hooked up for the procedure and it begins and he looks over and he says, when's it going to happen? And, and they kind of looked at him like, what are you talking about? Well, I'm giving my sister my blood. When am I going to die? He thought by giving his blood that he was giving his life for his sister. A wonderful story of human love. Friends, think about what Christ did. You know the danger of us in a church like this is I'm telling you things that you've heard over and over and over. And yet there are too many times I sit there and I hear it and my heart isn't moved. And maybe some of you are sitting there and you're hearing what I'm saying, but your heart's not leaping for joy. You're not rejoicing as you're commanded to do because you've lost sight of the all of the gospel. You've lost sight of what his death accomplished. His death has taken your filthy robes of, of unrighteousness that would not pass his judgment. And he's saying, I'm taking that off. Here's a new coat. Here, wear it. And by the way, it's perfectly suited for you. It's your size, Jim. It's your size. Because Christ's death accomplished a righteousness that is imputed to us. And friends, as I told you a couple weeks ago, you must cling to this truth of the gospel that Christ died for you to give you a righteousness you could not gain. Because when you stand before the devil and you're accused, or perhaps you have a sensitive conscience, and I hope you do, and perhaps you find your conscience may be overly sensitive and, and you're beating yourself up because of your many sins. Either way, you got a devil that's raking you across the coals and you got a conscience doing the same thing and you want to just throw in the towel and say, what's the use? The only possible way that you can get out of those pits is by what Christ's death did for you. He died. He's, his blood was shed so that you would be justified and have a righteousness not of your own. There's a legend about Martin Luther he was very sick, and the evil one, he entered his sick room, and looking at him with a triumphant smile, the devil unrolls a big scroll which he carried in his arms. As this fiend threw one end of it on the floor, it began to unwound itself. Luther's eyes read the long, fearful, fearful record of his own sins, one by one by one. This seemed to go on forever. That stout heart of the reformer began to be saddened. 
Suddenly it flashed into Luther's mind that there was one thing not written on the scroll. He cried aloud, one thing you have forgotten, devil. Everything that's on this scroll is true of me. But there's one thing that you have forgotten. The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses from all sin. And as he said this, the accuser of the brethren disappeared, and so did his heavy burden. Friends, if there was a scroll unrolled in your life, it would be long. I don't know your sins, but I know, I know some of mine. And that roll, that scroll's pretty. But you know what? It says in there that Christ died for the ungodly, that Christ died for sinners, that Christ died for the incapable, that Christ died for enemies, and that in being justified, he closes me with a righteousness that will pass all judgment. And friends, that's what you have too if you're a Christian. And if you're not a Christian today, I can't stress enough to you, you cannot stand before a holy God under the scrutiny of his judgment. You cannot stand there. And if you don't come to Christ to be clothed with a righteousness you cannot earn, then you will stand up on your own. And the horrific outcome of that judgment is indescribable. But let's move on. Look at verse 10. Here's the second, here's the second thing that Christ's death achieved. Not only did we have righteousness imputed, the glorious truth that I wear a robe of righteousness, not of my own. But reconciliation. Here's the heart of the gospel. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Do you see that there's two references to uh, the work of reconciliation in this verse, verse 10? There's the reconciliation associated with his death. Then there's a reconciliation associated with his life. The first reconciled by his death brings us peace. As we already mentioned, peace with God and the peace of God. The second one, the second one brings us into relationship. It brings us into the union that we're talking about in the ABF hour. It brings us into the reality of Christ in us and the joy of the Christ-like life in us. The Scottish missionary pastor William Hewitson said, quote, These two facts, Christ died and Christ living, give us peace of conscience and participation in the life of God. Christ dead is all for our pardon and peace. Christ living is all for life and holiness. End quote. Have you seen that? Have you plunged the depth of what the gospel has done for us in reconciling us to God? Not only does it allow us to have peace, you can have peace with God judicially and be a miserable Christian. You can be a Christian and have no assurance and be miserable because you've never seen the other aspect of reconciliation. And the other act of reconciliation is a God living his life through us, through his son. It's the Galatians 2.20 application. But it's also 1 John 4. Listen to 1 John 4. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. Now get a hold of that. Well, if we are to live through him, then something has to happen for that to occur. And what has to happen is reconciliation by death. And that verse goes on, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. You see what John's doing? John is saying that, prep, that pro, the propitiation of Christ, that reconciled the relationship 
but it establishes that we could walk in the fellowship of the relationship on an ongoing basis. If all you do is see the gospel as simply what saved you, and you just go through life never appropriating the gospel in your daily life, you're missing the blessings of reconciliation. And Paul would say we're reconciled so that we would live through him. Oh, do we need to know more of that? Our lack of joy is because we don't understand the tremendous privileges in the gospel and applying those to our lives. Reconciliation is a relational term. You know what reconciliation means? And, and, Paul, and, and what Paul uses here and, and what he uses it for, you know what it means? It means friendly relations restored. Friendly relations restored. You know what that means? I know I just said that, I'll say it again. Is that it means that there had to be an existing relationship to be restored. And that's where you have to go all the way back to the garden. You have to go all the way back to the garden. And I know Pastor Jonathan and I talked about this. I don't know why there is not more written about Genesis 3.15. I don't know why Genesis 3.15 is not exploding out of books today about the gospel. Because the answer to reconciliation began there in Genesis 3.15. And so when we look at this reconciliation, it's not God giving us a new relationship. It's restoring one that was broken from then that has been passed down to us in need of reconciliation. So when you consider what Christ has accomplished in his death, have you? Have I? Have I applied the atonement to my life every day? That's what we're called to. I'm not called just to say, you know what? God saved me. Christ died for sinners. I'm a sinner. Christ died for the ungodly. I'm ungodly. Christ died for the incapable. I'm incapable. Christ died for enemies. I was an enemy. Praise his Lord. I'm no longer those things. But if that's all you got, then I would, com- I would say that you're probably living a pretty defeated Christian life. And that you're trying to figure out where's the joy. You're trying to maybe figure out why does my life not reflect what I read in the New Testament? When you read, and I'm not trying to make pie-in-the-sky Christian living, but I've been awakened in my own life to see that there is too often a wide gulf between what the New Testament describes Christianity and what I am. And we are to live a life of thanksgiving, a life of, thankful, a, a life of gratitude, a life of praise, a life of joy, a life of patience, a life of kindness, the life of the Holy Spirit's fruit in us. That defines Christianity. And we'll get there if we understand the implications of Christ's death. If we understand what we are and, who he, and, and, and he died for us. If we understand what he accomplished. And what did he accomplish? He accomplished clothing us with something we'll never have to take off again. And can't. He also achieved reconciliation. Well, let's move on to the last one. Look at verse 11. So we, we looked at whom did Christ die. We looked at what did Christ's death accomplish. Now verse 11, what is the fruit? What is the fruit of reconciliation? And this is the application. Okay, basically we can say, okay, so what? Now so what? Well, here's the so what. If I understand what I was, who died, Christ died for, and if I understand what was accomplished, 
in, in my life because of this, then this is the outcome. Now, I'm, I'm granted this is not going to be perfect, but it, sure, it certainly should be present and progressing. And if these things are absent in our life, let's stop tolerating it. Let's say, I'm done with my version of Christianity. I'm done with the miserable Christian. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be what God wants me to be, and God help me and show me mercy, because remember, I'm incapable. But beloved, this is what God wants for us. This is what he's provided for us. And Paul would say this. Look at verse 11. More than that. More than all he said. And he said a lot. He said more than that. We rejoice. We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. To whom we have not received reconciliation. Do you know what the dominant characteristic in heaven is going to be? It's going to be rejoicing. Read Revelation 4 and 5. Buy Joseph Carroll's book, How to Worship Jesus Christ. I'm not big on how-to books. But that little tiny book, How to Worship Jesus Christ by Joseph Carroll, it's really uh, exposition sermons on Revelation 4 and 5. It is a very good book. And it will draw you to the scene of heaven. And you know what the scene in heaven is? It's rejoicing. It's rejoicing. And so when I read that, I read what Paul says, then I'm, I think to myself, and, and, and you can apply it to yourself, I think, wait a minute. If this is what Paul says is the result of the atonement, if this is a result of me believing the gospel, that I would have a life of rejoicing, and I don't have a life of rejoicing, then one of two things is true. Number one, I really don't believe the gospel. Or number two, I haven't plunged the depths of the gospel and applied it to my life. Notice what he says here. Now we rejoice in the Lord Jesus to whom we now receive reconciliation. It's very interesting the word rejoice in the letter to the Romans. It occurs five times. Three times in chapter five. I thought, well, why? Because chapter five lays the foundation for chapter six, seven, and eight, which all of them end with the Lord Jesus, either through or in, and shows how to live the justified life. And the justified life is first and foremost a life of rejoicing. I want us just to quickly, and we'll finish for this as we prepare for the table. I want you to think of a life of rejoicing that should be the result in our lives because of the gospel. And we're going to take those three times that he would mention rejoicing in Romans 5 and make the application. Before I say that, do you know one of the most influential things that we can have as Christians in the church and in our families and in our community, the most influential thing we can give our world is a fruit of the Spirit life that is marked by humility and marked by rejoicing because that makes us so different from the world. Not weird religious zealots. It makes us biblical Christians. And how could people not look at us and ask for the hope that is in us when we are living above circumstances because of the joy of the Lord? When we're a rejoicing people. Verse 2 of Romans 5. Paul would say this. Though we have now retained access by faith. Into this grace in which we stand. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. What is that? That is future. What sustains you when, the, when, when it's really dark? What sustains you when it's really, really. You can't see God. And, and you feel your circumstances are overwhelming you. What sustains you when your sin is weighing you down? What sustains you as you look to the not yet? 
You look to the future. Paul says, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And the hope of the glory of God is what John Murray says, the consummation of redemption. The hope in Romans chapter 8, I'm not going to read it, but ropes is about, it's about the creation groaning. And it's about us groaning for that day when we'll give away all of this and all the ugliness of our remaining sin, and we're able to look in that day when we'll never again sin, we'll never again be under the oppression of the devil. What is that? It is rejoicing in the hope of yet to be. But that hope is not like the world. This hope is real. It's solid. And so Paul would say because of the atonement, and it's all wrapped up in chapter 5, because of what Christ has done in reconciliation, we can now look beyond the grave. We can see hope. Hope that causes me to bear all things, believe all things, endure all things, even in the dark agonies of the night when you're, all you have is tears and all you have is pain and all you can do is look upward and say, Father, it's enough because we rejoice in the hope The hope of what? The glory of God. And that is the second coming of Jesus. And this hope and this rejoicing intensifies in trials. It doesn't lessen. The exiles in Peter, in the first letter, he said, you rejoice in this, the new birth, but now you're grieved by various trials. But remember, it is to purify your faith so that when Christ comes, it will be under the praise and glory of his name. Well, the second one, look at verse 3 of Romans 5. Here's the second application of a life that is justified. The fruit being a life of rejoicing. Number one, we rejoice because of heaven. And, and I, I don't want you to lose sight. Well, I'll say this later, but I don't want you to re, re, uh, misinterpret mis, mis, uh, me about heaven. It's about the person of heaven. It's about the glory of Christ. Heaven's a great place. We don't know much about it. But heaven's great because of the greatness of the person the Lord Jesus. Number three, look at verse three. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. So in the, the atonement allows us to be rejoicing people to the future. It also allows us to rejoice in sufferings in the present. Paul would say, but we rejoice, present tense, present tense, in our sufferings. And he would say, why? Because suffering produces character. Character in the Christian life is only forged through the fires of affliction. Man, it's so easy to say that. And it's so hard to live that. And yet it's the fire of affliction that builds character. And Paul says rejoice in that. Because all that suffering you're enduring and all that, it's causing you little by little to be conformed to the image of Jesus. Little by little, you're growing more in the image of Jesus. And then finally, verse 11 again. So you see the application of the gospel. It's to produce a rejoicing life. Rejoicing that no matter how hard it gets here, we know where we're going. Rejoicing in our sufferings, knowing that there is so much in us not like Jesus that we don't even know about that God is going to take care of. And then the third one is, verse 11, look what he says. We rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus. Through our Lord Jesus. The culmination of all things is Jesus. Heaven, as you you read Revelation 4 and 5, I want you to think about what is the dominant themes in Revelation 4 and 5. It's not the worshipers. It's not the people. It's not the angels. It's not the uh, the six-winged creatures. 
You know what the themes in heaven are? The throne and the lamb. The throne and the lamb. I was sitting there, I was thinking about this over the weekend. I was thinking, oh, for my life to be focused about two things, the throne and the lamb. You know what happens when you focus on that places? Self is destroyed. Self is crucified. There's no focus on the worshipers in heaven. Jonathan Edwards closed this. Closed, he, wrote a, he wrote a sermon. He preached a sermon. It's included in a book. It's called The Glorious Prospect of Heaven. I'll close with this. Edwards said this. How blessed, therefore, are they that do see God, that are come to this exhaustless fountain. They have obtained that delight that gives full satisfaction. Being come to this pleasure, they neither do nor can desire any more. They can sit down fully contented and take up with this enjoyment forever and ever and desire no change. After they have had the pleasures of beholding the face of God for millions of ages, it won't grow a dull story. The relish of this delight will be as exquisite as ever. There is enough still for the uttermost employment of every faculty. Friends, that's what the atonement has done for us. And Paul says, you've been justified by faith. As justified by faith people is because of God's love in Christ. And God's love in Christ has caused him to send him to die. And he died for all those four categories. He died so that we would have justification, righteousness, reconciliation. And he died that we would have a rejoicing life. A life that causes us to live above the circumstances. A life that causes us to exhibit to the world the reality that Jesus Christ is enough in everything. May God help us. Father, thank you for your word. And thank you that we can have a rejoicing life. And I pray that even now as we celebrate the table that we will rejoice. For Christ's sake, amen.